I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. Writers on Writing focuses on the art, craft, and business of writing. My guest today is novelist Jacinda Townsend, author of Mother Country, published by Grey Wolf. Jacinda is the author of Saint Monkey, which won the Janet Heidegger Kafka Prize and the James Fenimore Cooper Prize. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and teaches in the MFA program at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Today we talked about alternating point of view characters, setting, motherhood in fiction, slavery, and so much more. If you're a regular listener, then you know Writers on Writing is now on Patreon. Our supporters are growing and we so appreciate our loyal listeners. This show began in 1998. We began podcasting in 2005. That's a long time. So if the show has helped with your own writing path, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Now for the show. Jacinda, I'm so glad to talk with you. I received Mother Country a while back and read it and just read it again to uh, prepare for our interview. And I would love to hear about how the novel came about. Sure. Um, so there are two main stories. And I, so there are two, let me start over with that. There are two protagonists, and each protagonist has her own part of the story. Um, the American woman who is struggling for, for, with infertility and is visiting Morocco on a business trip with her husband, um, she kind of came about because when I, when I had both my kids, I thought I was going to have these wonderful, beautiful, natural births and a bath of water, you know, and just Bambi would come out of the woods and start talking to me. And then that's not at all what happened. Um, and they were both C-sections. And it took me a long time to feel like if I had failed at the critical moment, you know, could I really be their mother? Um, and I spooled that out of my head to the nth degree. And I thought, what if you came by a child in like the weird, weirdest way possible, you know? And I thought, well, gosh, what if you kidnapped a kid? How long does it then take you to feel like that child's mother? And out of that thinking, Shannon was born. And so Shannon is the first character we meet in the book. Um, she, it's not too much of a spoiler because it happens in the first chapter. She finds a child in the Medina in Morocco and then kind of absconds with her back to the United States. And this, this child is the child of a Mauritanian woman who has escaped slavery. Um, and that woman's name is Surya. And Surya came about because in 2013, um, on one of my trips to Morocco, I took a side trip to Mauritania and um, I was hosted by anti-slavery activists. And for those who don't know, 20% of the Mauritanian population is enslaved. Um, still to this day, it's brutal slavery. Um, it's caste-based, which means it's color-based slavery. So 
I met an escaped slave who, she had eight children. The last child had been born on her way out of the desert. And while I was talking to her, you know, I said, what can I do for you? Like, can I, what can I do? And she said, just tell my story. And so Saria is sort of her story combined with a composite of other slave stories I heard from Mauritania. So those, those are the ways the two characters and their stories came about. Mm. I was going to say Morocco is such a vivid setting, the visuals and the smells. And, and I was going to say you must have spent time there because it's so well depicted. And obviously you have been there more than once. Yes, it's um, it's become almost a second home because <laughs> we I used to take my children back like every every other summer. So I would get, you know, funding from my university or whatever and take them. And um, we always had an adventure. I'm a single mom. And so it was kind of like um you know, we, I, I always joke, Morocco's like an abusive spouse. Two days out of the three, it's going to show you a really hard time. And then that third day would always be magical. But I, I think my kids in a lot of ways grew up there, but so did I. Um, it, one thing I was really determined to write about is that experience of being a woman in, in a country being a woman kind of there living outside of that system. Um, and so that's something that I very much experienced um, when I was in Morocco. But also, you know, I experienced the beauty and the magic and the wonder of a place where all these cultures are sort of meeting up. Um, you know, it's just a delicious, delicious place with so many, so many different kinds of stories. It's incredible. So I wanted to write there. Yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, back to the structure, you know, I was thinking as I was reading it, that, you know, it's like, who came first, exactly? Did Shannon come first? Or did Soria come first? And then we have the daughter later on as a point of view character, but, um, or did they both come at once? I mean, did you say to yourself, this has to be a dual point of view novel? because each of their stories, how they intersect and their history and what's happened to them, um, one can't be without the other. Yes, um, that's such a good question. Thank you. Um, I would say, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I would say the backbone of the story is this question about how does one become a mother? And in that sense, believe it or not, Surya's story came to me first because, um, you know, in some sense, both of these moms become moms, not necessarily by choice. Um, they're both facing these constraints. One of them is, is, you know, actively raped and that's how she becomes a mother. But the other one, even though she has choices, it seems they're not really great choices. Um, so Surya did come first. I felt compelled to write about slavery, you know, um, but then this question kept nagging at me about, you know, how does somebody, how does somebody feel like a proper parent um, when they've done this crazy thing, right? Um, so she, 
Shannon came second. Marty came, Mar Marty's point of view actually wasn't in the first or even the second draft of the novel, but eventually I felt like, you know, she as the quote unquote adopted child needed to be able to have her say in this novel. And so she came out of an editorial question actually. Someone asked me, okay, well, how come this child has forgotten all her Arabic? Why isn't she running around the United States saying, this is not my real mom and this is not my real dad. And so I wrote um, from her perspective, and again, not too much of a spoiler, but how her brain sort of unlearns who she is in order to become someone else. Um, and I did let her have the last word in the novel. And I think in some sense, she's the one with the biggest choice at, at the end of the novel. Mm. And there, there's a few themes going on, um, maybe more than a few themes going on in the novel. And the main one is motherhood, but there's also slavery and human trafficking. And I woke up, I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and I just ponder. And last night I woke up and I was thinking about your story. And I was thinking that these women are both dealing with their own version of slavery or being beholden to men and um yes. was that purposeful yes. especially on shannon's part absolutely um so one thing that i that this novel has in common with my last novel is that i i i love to write in the feminist tradition and i think that one thing that we don't think about a lot is the ways in which women are constrained almost no matter what. And so, um, you know, in my first novel, I had a woman who, a young woman, a very young woman who had to stay in Eastern Kentucky and raise her sister. But her friend who gets to quote unquote escape to New York, um, you know, she goes into jazz, she's a jazz pianist and she joins up with a jazz world that's just not going to let her play. Um, not going to let her be a success. And so in this novel too, I felt like I wanted to show that there's a, there's a woman who is literally enslaved with no choices whatsoever. But then there's this kind of, you know, what we would think of as a kind of privileged American woman. Um, but she has $150,000 in medical debt. She has $180,000 in student loan debt. She has to get married in order to get dental insurance. So in some sense, she too is using her body to get by. Um, and it very much, I mean, it's one, it's, I always think of her as like, she's sort of like Lando Calrissian, you know, you know, when he, he betrays, um, his friends and he says, I'd like to help you, but I have problems of my own. And I think Shanda, Shannon is a lot like Lando, um, in that, you know, she sees a kid and, and I always, when I'm giving readings, I ask audiences, I'm like, can you imagine a circumstance under which you would take a child um, and Shannon has every circumstance under which she feels compelled to take that child. So I hope that um, what I've drawn is a little bit of the moral complexity that I think every single one of us faces every day. We all make these choices and some of them aren't necessarily morally pure, but they're the choice we have to make in the moment, um, or at least we feel like it is. So I did want to explore, explore that. Yes. Thank you. And Shannon, it's, it's, um, 
complicated her choice to to kidnap um, the little girl. I mean, it's uh, partly it's a magnanimous gesture um, to help help the kid. I mean, she wants a child, of course, but it's um, there's more to it. And she doesn't really look at it as kidnapping exactly, because um, ultimately the government helps her to do this. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, I, I, I thank you for saying that because my publisher called it a kidnapping. That's when I started calling it kidnapping. <laughs> but until then, I thought, you know, under the circumstance, in the moment, you see a child who's unaccompanied. Uh, and, and yes, the Moroccan government helps you sort of make this happen. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, one thing that I didn't explore too much in this novel, I didn't, I, I felt like this would be a whole other novel really, is that um, international adoption is often like this. You know, you, uh, people do, are not quite certain how these children are coming into their care. But the government is very much encouraging it, very much rubber stamping it, and quickly rubber stamping it, and so it does, it does happen. Um, and I and I wrote a chapter later in the book um, because I think the harder, <laughs> the harder thing for me morally is, and and I always ask audiences this too. I'm like, could you watch a child be kidnapped and then say nothing? But I wrote a chapter where five different people actually witness this and do nothing. And they all have their very good reasons. Um, you know, there's a woman who just, her, her child has died and she feels like if I lack, if she can follow the will of Allah, so can this other mother. Um, but they, but yes. Yeah, so I, I hope I've drawn some, a complex set of characters who are, they're simply making choices, you know, and in the, in the end of the book too, I think, you know, I, I think this happens not only in parenthood, but in, you know, the rest of everybody's day, every single day, you can make mistakes, but if they're not mistakes of the heart, I don't know, are they mistakes? You know what I mean? Sometimes right. we, choices and we do things and we didn't mean for them to turn out the way they did. Well, does this sort of thing happen? I mean, you know, do wealthy Americans or wealthy couples from wherever, um, can they do this? Can they pay off a government official to um, take possession of a child? So it doesn't happen so much in Morocco. I, I almost feel bad for using Morocco as, as like the backdrop for this, but it does happen quite a bit in other countries. I think one country that, that this notoriously happens in is Ethiopia. Mm. Um, but, but in fact, you know, Morocco is a part of the world where if you slip someone 5,000 uh, Durham, a lot can happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that, that part, that part is very real. I know, um, Sometimes when we're traveling and you go to the airport and you're trying to get through customs and you can just slip someone some cash and go through with whatever, you know, um, so that that does happen. And, and it, you know, and that's another thing that has made our travel so interesting is that Africa is um, 
the rules are different. The rules feel like they're not rules, but they're their rules, right? Um, so we've had we've kind of bent our minds around what that system is because it is a system. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear you read from Mother Country. Could you do that? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm going to read from the very beginning, actually, because it opens up the question. And what, after all, to make of a choice? She'd chosen to return to Morocco with a man she'd wed just two years prior, a man she felt she could never know from Adam, a perennially constipated wind engineer named Vladimir, who still shocked her in the mornings with his routine of gargling loudly before spitting. And now here Shannon was in calm, cool Asuera, that frat boy of Moroccan cities, with all the riads, all the hotels, all the municipal buildings painted blue and white to mirror the water and sand opening out into the Atlantic. After the roasted air and sandstone red of Marrakesh, the breezy days and cold nights of Esuera were a relief. Their hotel stood beachfront with a view of the distant island of Mogador and its time-crumbled slave prison. Daytimes, when Vlad was away overseeing his powered turbines, she walked the streets behind the hotel. She wore sunglasses so no pickpocket could register her wonder and put on the harried pace of the Moroccan women she saw running errands all around her. Unescorted, she found flowering bushes in people's front yards and a film of grit that blew from the graveled public lots to coat her hair. A mole decomposing in stages until its fourth day dead, when what she found in its place were maggots writhing in a dark, murky pudding of sand. She found a private school for children with a mural of dolphins and squid painted on its face. She took long lunches of fish tagine with glass after glass of red wine and wiped her lips clean with wet napkins. The waiters exercised patience with her French and everywhere, everywhere rode the persistent sound of wind howling through the door cracks like lost souls. She'd been collected at the Marrakesh airport the Friday before in a private car, a newish Mercedes that hermetically sealed the extension of her American existence. Without Vlad running interference, she took in the traffic lights of Morocco, posted on actual poles, the bulbs within them old and heat dimmed, on the verge of not working at all. An ambulance had passed with its lights flashing, but no one, including her driver, stopped or even slowed to salute the urgency. In a roundabout near the city center, she saw an unhelmeted child sitting on the back of a motorcycle, holding fast to her father's back as he leaned into his turn. Morocco was at once psychedelic and ancient, like a collage of retro-painted postage stamps. Every surface and every crowd turned seven different colors at once. Thank you so much. I love that last bit about uh, Morocco, that, that detailing about, about it. It's so visual. And once again, when I read that, I'm like, oh, she had to have been there. She had <laughs> it's really lovely. Um, so the first sentence, the first page, um, how much attention do you, do you pay to the first sentence and the first page? Because it's certainly compelling the reader to continue. Well, thank you. I, I am a big believer and I, I had a colleague who used to say that 
the the conflict of any short story or novel was actually in its first six lines. Um, and I, I'm a big believer in that. I, I love how um, at the beginning of Toni Morrison's Jazz, she tells you every single thing that's going to happen plot-wise on that first page. And then the rest of the novel, you know, there's 349 more pages that are kind of the why and the how. And it's something that I always aim for. But I always aim to, 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 to deliver the premise on that first page, um, you know, hopefully in that first paragraph. So I felt like the premise of this that, that I wanted to put on that first page is that this is a woman who allegedly has choice, but actually doesn't. Um, and even in that car on the way from the airport, I was trying to sort of evoke the sense that a lot of the choices have been made for her and it's really hard for her to escape that. Hmm. What about the um, first sentence of the first two chapters? I'm just looking. It's very, they're very similar. Yes. Um, and what after all to make of a choice? Um, I, I began the second chapter with that as well. Um, and I'm looking for the line, um, the exact line is that the, in the second chapter, Surya is actually escaping ch ch uh, charity, escaping slavery, sorry. And so there's the refrain that's repeated in the first chapter and how after all to judge a choice in two years with her solid stable breadwinner, Shannon had forgotten the horror of going to the ATM and being denied. So again, you know, I was trying to sort of issue the idea that um, she didn't have a lot of choice because she actually doesn't have any money without this husband that she's come upon. But in the second chapter, in Saria's chapter, I have the line, and what after all to make a choice? when capital C choice is no more than a baseline that disappears in fierce wind. When Allah has predetermined the groove of a life, no different from a ripple in thick sand. And so then we get in some sense, the other end of the spectrum of being choiceless, because we have a, we have a young woman who's traveling across the desert um, and she's at the whim of everything, including even the weather. She's at the wind of the whim of um, sand that sort of like disappears. Her footprints disappear in the night after she's kidnapped and trafficked. And so her her choices are just completely absent. There's not even the illusion of choice for that young woman until close to the end of the novel. Hmm. Um, so once you had the idea, once you the characters came into focus, did you create any kind of outline or, or anything you followed? Or are you sort of a seat of the pants kind of writer? And let's see where this takes me. I am very much a pantser um, <laughs> for the first draft anyway. I, I like to let my characters decide what they're going to do. Um, I'm also a huge believer in conflict coming out of character. And I, and I think that there, there are the quirks that your character have has um, that sort of create internal conflict. 
And that internal conflict leads to the external conflict that ultimately creates pot. But I don't really, I don't really sit down and plot until, you know, the second draft when I figured out what I really want to say in a novel, um, what that novel is about, what those characters are about. Then I go back and I, and I do the whole Rubik's cube thing of deciding, well, if I have this ending, you know, what, what will foreshadow it right from the first chapter. Um, but I, I love to give people freedom in that first draft. How uh, will it be like a complete, like 300 page or whatever um, first draft it will be pretty hefty before you go back and, and, and try to figure out exactly what to do? Yes, I, I, you know, uh, with, with this one, well, actually with both of them, I, I would say, I, I've never felt like any sort of like Jedi master of endings, you know, I think it's like landing a plane. It's like, I, I've read like landing a plane is when the crashes most often happen. <laughs> and I think like writing a novel is the same way. So my first, first draft endings are usually pretty messy too. And then I always do, I, I kind of borrowed this trick from Alice Monroe. Alice Monroe, does this brilliant thing of like, like any Alice Monroe story has this ending that could have been a perfectly powerful ending. And then I, I've noticed she always writes past that and she finds this way more powerful ending and something that you wouldn't expect that character to do or something that the character did as a sort of, you know, coda to the original ending. So I tried to do that with this novel as well. I'm not, I, I can barely talk about it without spoiling it, except to say that at the end of the novel, everyone has to make a choice. Um, every single person has to make a choice and nobody is exactly happy with the choice they have to make. Mm -hmm. make. <laughs> I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one. I mean, there's, there's a lot as a reader that you grapple with as well, you know. It's, um, it's not a pick me up. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, it's not, but that's part of what makes it so powerful, right? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't tend to read those novels that pick me up. Maybe I should, but I don't. I don't tend to. Um, but I, I was curious, though. Uh, how do you keep track of all the moving parts? Because no this novel does have so many moving parts. So, do you have, you know, uh, uh, newsprint all over your wall, or three by five cards, or do you have keep Excel spreadsheets, or is it all in your head? Um, mostly it's in my head, but I do have a running, I used to, I used to write things down on post-it notes and stick them on a, um, cork board. And then I, and then I thought, well, I'll catch up with the 21st century here. Um, and so I, I keep a long document with things like, what year was it when this happened and and like what is even things like what is this character's middle name because that's going to come up again you know and and i find that it's easier that way because when i'm done with it in a draft i just delete it and then 
you know, maybe start another document for the second draft. But that's how I keep up with all the moving parts. I, I, I don't know if that's the most efficient thing and whether you, you know, like, I don't know if you do that as a writer, if you keep a, a document. No, I don't. I, you know, today I started a plot board for the, for the book that I'm working on so that, you know, I went through the chapters and in, you know, using a highlighter, highlight the different character, each character gets a different color for their name when it shows up in a chapter and then just kind of summarizing what happened in each chapter so that I can remember where it happened and, you know, to, to be able to find it. Um, but I don't, I don't do that. Yes. Either. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. In your head and heart sort of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have a little notebook that I kind of any notes that I need to keep track of go in this notebook for the book. It's not a journal. It doesn't, nothing else goes in this notebook except everything concerning the book, but mm-hmm. You know, it's still, I don't think it's ideal what I'm doing. I don't, I keep thinking there's an ideal way to keep track of things and maybe not, maybe. Well, it seems to be working well for you. So (laughs) perhaps we are on, perhaps we are on to something. (laughs) You know, I like, I like plot boards because I can, I can look at it and see what's happening in that chapter. Just, you know, thumbnail, thumbnail, what's happening. Yes. Um, Yes. So I'm going to go with that for this one, but (laughs) we'll we'll see. The jury's out. Um, But what about like Shannon and Surya's past, their history? Did you need to figure all that out before you could start writing or did you figure it out as you were writing? I did a little, I do, I do, I, I'm probably kind of weird in this way. I do character sketching as I go and I end up doing, I am like once a week, I'll just, my writing day will be character sketching. And a lot of it is stuff like, um, I'll, I'll come up with these just weird questions for myself. Like, was she picked on in second grade? Did her grandmother like her? And then I'm always kind of blown away at what you figure out by just, sort of forcing that exercise upon yourself. Um, A lot of the, like, a lot of the minor characters, including Vladimir, maybe he's not that minor, but there's a lot about him that it never quite went in the book, but I know it so deeply about him that I'm able to sort of imagine his character better. Um, So I do a lot of, a lot of sketching like that. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you listen to music as you write? Does the book have a soundtrack? I do. I I listen to me any music without words. Do you do you when you write listen to music? You know what I've been doing. Well, again, it'll be it'll also be instrumentals, but I'll listen to. Um, I use this program. I started using this program called Freedom, which prevents me from going online while writing. And they have little little soundtracks. So I put on the bird soundtrack. Oh, nice. And, and my son also made um, typewriter music 
um, loops. That's so nice. But on Spotify, so I'll listen to that too. But that's very nice. Yeah, won't can't have words. No words. No, no. And and because one thing I noticed about your bio that just really it resonated me. I never won the spelling bee, but then you were. (laughs) That level of into word because I am too. I I get um, really kind of deeply into word choices and just the rhythm of words and you know and um, so it it yeah if the music has words it's, it's just not going to work. Um, but also I feel like I don't know if you feel like this way, but it's like to me it is almost like being immersed in a music that it's is its own music and is its own rhythm. And so when I'm writing, um, I like to be able to hear that in my inner ear. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I was, I was wondering about the music because as I was reading this, I was thinking now, what would, what might she have heard playing when she (laughs) was uh, writing this book? (laughs) Well, a lot of times I listen to a band called Tanara Wynn, which is a, they're not Moroccan, but they're a desert band. Have you heard of them? They're no, like, I haven't. They're amazing. Um, and there were, like, I don't I don't speak Arabic that well enough to translate it as I'm listening to it. So technically it's not words, but they, what they're singing about is sort of um, desert life and the ways that, you know, all of these countries that own parts of the Sahara have not been great to the people of the Sahara and so that's what they're singing about so it's kind of inspiring to have them in the background as I was writing about this mistreatment um, of the Saharan girl. How about the title and the cover which deserve a serious mention? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked so that was not the original title. Um, The original title was Keth which is high quality Moroccan weed. Um, there's a region called the Kif region where it's grown and the sort of main city in that region is called Chefchaouen. So we were there one year during Ramadan and it was the, just the best thing because, so, you know, at, uh, Ramadan would start at 5.30 in the morning. People would start their fasting, no drinking, no eating, no smoking. And then every evening when the prayer was called at around 5.30, just this cloud of weed would like rise up. You know, we could smell it in the hotel. So it, it was called Kif originally because a lot of the plot um, involves the fact that Shannon is a stoner. She's, she's basically a stoner, you know, and one of the choices she has to make is to maybe not be that after she acquires this child. Um, but it's just so much of the plot. And then my publisher suggested Mother Country, and I liked it a lot. But what kind of stuck with me was this idea that, you know, when, when we think of motherhood, we think that we should all be aspiring to be June Cleaver. And I think that's the way the world kind of sees motherhood. And the reality is so different. The reality is that cover with that woman smoking that whatever it is, you know, it's kind of questionable on the cover. Mm-hmm. But that's um, sort of the reality of it is that we're, we're all kind of struggling and we're all just making it through the day doing what we need to do to get from point A to point B. 
Um, so I was, I, I, I didn't draw the cover, but the cover was actually my idea, which um, I think is so, it's just so lucky and rare in the publishing industry. I said, it, it needs to be a woman like smoking something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a beautiful cover. It could, it could easily be a poster, you know, or a print, yeah. framed print, you know. Um, yeah, it's really gorgeous. Um, what what do you do when you hit a wall? Do you ever hit a wall when you're writing and you don't know where to go or what do you do? I do. Um, and on the one hand, I think I, I refuse to believe in writer's block as a, as a thing that's going to stop me. I think even when on a day when you're not feeling creative, you can, um, you can edit. Um, I, I, I give myself a word limit every day I write at least 500 words and you know sometimes those 500 words are really not that great but they're there to be worked with the following day if I want um and I think that you know the imagination kind of begets the imagination and the more you're in there with it the more it it just grows and grows um and I find I get to the end of a draft and I'm just like I I got to the end of the draft of the novel I'm working on now and I just cried for three days because those people were just so with me um you know and um I have lost track of your original question Barbara I'm sorry oh, oh when you hit a wall <laughs> oh yes so I um so on, on the one hand I don't let writer's blocks stop me but I do realize and and recognize that there are times when you feel like you have put, you've put a lot of you out there in the sense of being a creative person. And sometimes you need to fill that well back up. And so when I feel like I'm just sapped of the of that sort of creative, imaginative energy, I just watch really good movies or I'll read some, um, I, I, I'm a rereader. I'll read my favorite books again, just to get, to feel like I'm putting the good stuff back in the well, and then I can go back and draw on that well. So that kind of works into my next question. I was gonna ask you about influences and books you've loved, but what are some of the books that you've reread because of whatever, you love them or they um, informed something you're working on or? Yes, so my favorite, um, set of books maybe ever is the rabbit books by john updike um and i'm embarrassed almost to say how many times i've reread each one of them i've read them i've read them as a very young person i've read them as someone who didn't have kids i've read them as a parent i've read them as a parent of kids who are as old as rabbit's son was <laughs> in the, you know in the third book and they have been different for me every single time I've read them, um, which I think is just a testament to, you know, the magic that that I've, the, the magic of sort of giving every single person their story. Um, you know, the, the teenager in that third rabbit book has a whole story that, that rabbit's not really privy to. And so to read that again as the parent of teenagers it's, it's just it's like a whole new book for me you know um, and so i learned a lot from 
rereading them actually I learned about sort of giving everyone their story um I think there's a line in the third or fourth rabbit book when he lets us in on the fact that actually rabbit knows that his wife's not as stupid as he's been saying you know in this first and second book she's always referred to as like a dumb mat and this and then suddenly you're like oh whoa he knows she's not stupid and so um I, I love the sort of revelation and the the kind of multifaceted characterizing that goes on in those books. Interesting. I, you know, I think I read one of them years ago, so I must, uh, I must do it again. I love to reread and it's interesting what you get the second time or the third time. Yes. Yes. Do you have a recommendation for me that you read? Um, you know what I really liked, and it surprised me that I liked it so much, was, um, well, a couple of them. But one is Elizabeth Gilbert's The Signature of All Things. Mm. I, because I wasn't particularly into her nonfiction, uh -huh. but I love that novel. And I read it, and I read it again. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, okay. And then... Yeah, The Talented Mr. Ripley, I think, by Patricia Highsmith, I've read a couple of times. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I, I do love, I, I do love rereading and oh, thank you. getting, getting back, seeing what happens the next time, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in drawing down to the close, I just wanted to say I, I'm crazy for desert stories and I love the desert, all deserts. And I was so happy to find your material and your book and, and I need to check out your first novel. And I wonder if you have any advice for the writers who are listening. Um, I would say it is all in some sense, writing is a game that you just have to keep playing. Um, I feel like there are days that I lose the game, actually. And I mean that not just on the level of like, oh, I got a rejection or this, you know, I got a bad review or this happened. But I mean, just as a writer, purely writing. I, today, actually, I had a terrible writing day. I was like, this, these are the worst lines. Like, I, <laughs> I wouldn't read this. I can't believe I wrote it. But you just have to keep playing the game. And the longer you stay in the game, the more of a habit it becomes to write, the better and the better you get. Um, I, I, Flaubert used to say talent is a patience. Uh, and I absolutely agree with that statement. Um, you know, it's a lot like my, my kids both play the cello and I've watched them over the years just kind of when, when they stay in the groove and they have that muscle memory with their fingers, things are going really well. And so I've tried to do that with my writing too. So when you have a terrible day and you've written words that you, you know, think stink, will you keep them anyway and wait and just wait and, and not hit delete? <laughs> <laughs> um I will go back tomorrow and fix this um I do I am a big slash and burn person but only at the end of a draft at the end of a draft you know I might discard like 50 pages but until then I just try to fix rather than delete <laughs> yeah. 
Me too. Jacinda, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, thank you from Mother Country. Thank you. It's such an honor to be on Writers on Writing. Um, thank you so much for having me, Barbara. That was Jacinda Townsend, author of Mother Country. This episode was recorded on July 28, 2022. Music and sound editing by Travis Barrett. If you want to know more about the show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host Marie Stone or me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. Thank you for listening. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this was Writers on Writing. Writers on Writing.